Welcome to the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. In this edition, we speak with the inaugural ADM Women in Defence Hall of Fame inductee, Shireen McKinney. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Grant McCarran, and once again, I'm joined by Catherine Ziesing, the Managing Editor of Australian Defence Magazine. How are you going, Kath? Hey, good. Thanks, Grant. That's great. Now, uh, today, Kath and I are joined by Shireen McKinney. She's the former General Manager of Joint Systems and Air Group in the uh, Defence Materiel Organisation, as it was then called. And Shireen has extensive experience leading the acquisition and sustainment of complex, high-technology systems, having spent 15 years at DMO in senior management roles. Shireen is also the inaugural inductee into the Women in Defence Awards Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show, Shireen. Thank you. So, Shireen, you, Grant mentioned there that you've had 15 years experience within the DMO, but that hasn't been the entirety of your career, obviously. Someone who looks at your achievements now probably wonders how on earth did you get there? Can you step us through your career journey? Well, it started uh, when I was a kid. I had an idea that I might want to be an engineer. I mentioned that to the teachers at school and they actually didn't really understand what engineers did. Uh, So rather than uh, maintaining my desire to do it, even though I had applied to university for uh, acceptance into engineering, I decided that I'd become a draftswoman. I thought that given that everybody was rather discouraging from doing engineering, I thought, well, I'll do drafting instead. And I got an apprenticeship, moved to Sydney, and in the first few weeks of my apprenticeship, I was talking to one of the other apprentices who said, I think I might go to university. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if you can go to university, so can I. So I still didn't really know what engineering was, even though I was working in an engineering firm. And one of the engineers said that he would uh, link me up with uh, a lecturer at University of New South Wales. So I visited uh, that lecturer and he spoke to me about engineering and engineering careers, which was really good. And so I thought, hmm, I think I might do engineering. That was Wednesday. On Thursday, I finalised my enrolment at the university. Uh, Friday, I quit my job. And on Monday, I started university. Oh, my God. That's that's a bit of a, a whirlwind. It was. And then about... And and then I thought, oh, I don't actually have any income anymore. So I managed to find a job where I could uh, work for my board. So that eliminated one cost that I had. And I think I had $125 in the bank and I had to live on that for a few months until my tertiary education assistance came through. So having uh, got a job babysitting kids for my board, doing ironing and those sorts of things, it was all good. And then I thought, oh, dear, I probably should let my mum and dad know that I've chucked my job in. I've gone to university. I have no income, but it's okay because I do have a place to live, a very nice place in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. (laughs) So that was all good. And initially I thought, yeah, if I don't like this, I might actually uh, switch over to economics because I quite enjoyed economics as well. But in the first few weeks of uh, doing engineering, I thought, oh, this is actually pretty good. I quite like this. So I, I stayed in engineering. So when you say engineering, like what kind of engineering were you doing? I did electrical engineering. And those days, electrical engineering was a very broad degree. Um, it covered 
telecommunications, it covered electronics, it, it covered biomedical engineering. So there's quite a, a broad range of occupations that uh, an electrical engineering degree could take you into. I think today a lot of the university courses are perhaps more specialised than they were back when I did university. So you've gone on this crazy university journey. What happened then? Uh, well, um, I managed to get my degree in four years, which was uh, uh, pretty good. Um, and I guess what was actually uh, good about that was um, when I was at school, I wasn't allowed to do science. And of course, engineering requires science as a prerequisite. But this year, the university dropped a lot of its prerequisites. So that was good. And it was pretty all right for things like physics, because uh, physics is just another way of doing maths. And I'd done high level maths. But I, I, I didn't like chemistry at all because I'd never done chemistry before. So that was okay. You don't need a lot of chemistry for electrical engineering. So uh, that, was, that was pretty good. Uh, so uh, when I uh, finished my degree, uh, I decided I'd uh, look for a job, obviously. And I started working at the Overseas Telecommunications Commission uh, where I worked for about four years. And at that point in time, my husband, Drew, uh, got posted to Canberra. So I thought, well, I'll get a job in Canberra and move here. And I managed to get a job in the Department of Employment and Industrial Relations where I was uh, doing workplace health and safety uh, type of issues. And the sorts of areas I was specialising in were areas of ergonomics and, and the like, but um, at the time, we are also setting up uh, WorkSafe Australia, so we were doing a lot of work in the new policy areas, uh, trying to get model legislation for work health and safety across Australia as well. Uh, and I, I enjoyed that. I, I um, managed to uh, find a bit of a niche there for a while, but uh, one of my supervisors said, well, the only people, engineers, that end up in work health and safety are ones that failed at their original discipline. Oh, wow. So, so I thought, whoa, dear. Uh, I think I might go back and prove that I haven't failed um, at my uh, initial discipline. And that's when I ended up in defence. So I found a job uh, in defence. Uh, and at the time, we were building the first secure uh, communications network for defence. And I initially thought I'd, I'd just stay in defence for a couple of years, get that extra experience, and then I, I thought I'd probably want to go back to one of the central agencies to do more policy work because I enjoyed that. But defence is so interesting. There is so much you can do in defence and you can do it and still work in the same department. So having started out doing um, engineering uh, on the telecommunications network and then also doing project management, I did move into some project policy areas and then for a couple of years and then I moved into the force development analysis division, which some people refer to as forces of darkness and annihilation. Um, <laughs> and that, that's the area in defence that used to do the analysis of um, major investment proposals as they were going through their committees and provide an independent, if you like, view with the idea that we should be trying to optimise capability if we could. Um, now, on this particular journey, I also did 
a women's development program which was run by the Public Service Commission. And interestingly on that, when I presented my CV to the people who were running that course, they said to me, you're an engineer, you'll never make it to the senior executive service. And I went, why not? Uh, engineers can't do policy, right? So I spent some time uh, looking at my CV to remove engineer out of it so it looked like I had never been an engineer and I could still be honest to the work I did but uh, without saying it was from an engineering perspective. Did anyone notice that? No, <laughs> not particularly, not particularly. So wow. Okay, that, cool. That, that, that was all good. And then I decided to apply for an SES job as an engineer, which was um, the Director General Navy Engineering Services. And I had to put all the engineering stuff back in. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that and uh, I, I got the job. And that was the, the start of my SES career, if you like, in the public service. Um, and uh, at the time, we were modernising uh, pretty much all of Navy's fleets, submarines, ships, and aircraft and, and the like. And so that was a lot of fun. Uh, the Defence Efficiency Review came through and my job was going to be moving into Support Command Australia and it would no longer be working for an admiral. And the admiral at the time that I worked for in the Navy Materiel Division was the chief Navy engineer. Uh, and so the decision was that uh, the chief Navy engineer had to be military and not civilian. So I then moved uh, into the Defence Acquisition Organisation running the electronic warfare and radar systems. Uh, Progressed up to uh, division head running electronic systems division, and we went through a number of changes where we took on new, we took on sustainment. We then also took on weapons. Uh, then later, the weapons moved out, and you know another restructure, if you like. Uh, and then ultimately, um, having done a fairly short time running the DMO's acquisition and sustainment reform program. I moved in general manager, joint systems and air, which I was there for about five years uh, until another review came along, which was the first principles review, where they decided that that level um, in the DMO well, and now capability acquisition and sustainment group was no longer required. Uh, and that's when I finished my full-time career in defence. And since then, I've been working on a number of boards, I run my own consultancy-type company, um, and I, I work on some volunteer boards as well as some paid boards and paid consultancy services. So that's pretty much where I am at the moment. Quite the uh, career getting to this point. Oh, it, was, it was fun, and I, I would say that the highlight would have been working in the DMO. Uh, mm. From I was there when we set it up, uh, and I was there when it got killed. <laughs> <laughs> Converted. <laughs> Converted. But would you say that um, there weren't very many ladies in engineering when you went to university and in some of your early roles? Were you finding that there were many other ladies around you or was it mostly guys? Because engineering used to be a mostly guy kind of environment in the past. Yeah, and it still is. Uh, I think in the year, my first year at uni, there were like I think 12 women and about 150 men. 
Um, and it was interesting because the next year there were only six women and about the same number of men. And so you find, I think, with um, people going, women going into university, it, it doesn't necessarily just go straight up. It it tends to go up and down. I, I don't know what the cause of that is. But also in the workplace there's not a lot of um, women. Well, certainly in the defence environment there's not a lot of women anyway, but there's fewer uh, female engineers. So I, I was actually quite surprised at how many times in your career you were told, no, you can't do that. No, you can't be that. How do you, how do you deal with that apart from sheer stubbornness? <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of uh, sheer stubbornness. And I, I guess that is one of the, the things that you often get labelled so as an engineer, I was labelled that I didn't understand policy and I wouldn't be a good SES officer if I couldn't do policy. Uh, then uh, when I was in DMO and I applied for a job in another agency, which was running some fairly small projects compared to what we were used to, the view was I was too narrow, right? And you go, okay, um, you're running like a $6 million project here and I've run lots of projects uh, that size or bigger. And when I, I followed up on it, the view was that um, I hadn't had a lot of experience in change. And I went, well, it's interesting because when you're introducing new capabilities into defence, you're actually manage quite, managing quite a lot of change. And as well as that, uh, in defence, there's changes occurring all the time. And, you know, I you know, there's restructure, there's reviews, and it's a fairly constant thing that you're managing change of some sort, whether it be transformational change uh, or just minor change or even harder is uh, managing cultural change. So I, I just kept on going and, and I guess I, I found my niche uh, in, in the DMI and I thought, well, I'm enjoying the heck out of this. Why would I want to go anywhere else? <laughs> Yeah, I um I followed your career quite a bit while you were in DMO and I always found it quite inspiring because I found you to be quite introverted, if not shy, uh, and yet still quite in, a, in a, a very senior leadership position. What advice would you give to, I guess, people coming through the system, you know, looking for leadership roles that perhaps don't have, um, air quotes, the typical leadership style, which is more outgoing? Yeah, and, and particularly in the defence environment, I think there's an expectation that good leaders will be extroverts. Uh, but when you actually look uh, around the world at some of the leaders in you know big companies, a lot of them are actually quite introverted. And I don't think you have to be the person who's able to get up and like do lots of things with lots of flair. Uh, I certainly found in my job, as a leader, what I guess worked for me was I always tried to get on top of my topic, uh, do the research, talk to the people who work with me, um, don't be afraid to admit I don't understand, get them to explain it. So when I would go to a senior committee meeting, I would be, I would have read the papers on top of my brief um, where there were some issues. I would be looking at what might be some of the solutions that we might have to some of those issues. And I found that being able to carry the argument um, that maybe our organisation had as a preference, I found that 
um, helped to be able to do that. And I think also uh, what worked for me was consistency. Like because I'd done the research and because I'd worked closely with people to understand what the best options were is uh, occasionally I had to change my mind, but that was usually because I got better information, right? But consistency in the way I worked with committees, you know, cooperated with other people. Um, We didn't always agree on everything, but we would usually find a a good way of um, getting the solution that would be workable. I understand you've also been involved in uh, a mentoring program, TFTC, the, the Future Through Collaboration. What have you gotten out of the process as a mentor? Um, I was involved in that for its pilot year and the following year. What I always find when I'm mentoring people is you learn so much about um, not only do you get to help the other person, but you learn so much about um, the environment they're working in, what they're doing, and it's just really interesting to you know work with uh, Lately, I've been mainly working with young women and you just find it so interesting just, you know, helping them through some of the issues they might have. Um, and they teach me lots of stuff too. And so, yeah, so that's I, I get a lot out of that. And I've also done mentoring not just with TFTC but also with Engineers Australia. They had a formal mentoring program uh, that I was involved in. But through other networks, you know, my own personal networks, quite often um, my colleagues will refer somebody to me for mentoring if they think that that person would benefit from having a senior woman mentoring them, particularly young engineers. So, yeah, there's a lot to be got out of mentoring as a mentor, not just as a mentee. They, they do say that uh, the best way to learn a, a topic is to try and teach it. And uh, I've noticed that doing some flight instruction. It's um, it's amazing what you learn about. You're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But uh, well done, kid. You're, you're doing good. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Where you actually find some of your own bad habits or deficiencies in an area. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you, you go, oh, my goodness, uh, I'll have to, like, dig around in my own mind. And you might not have the answer immediately, but after a bit of thinking, you go, oh, I know how, I know how, you know, that person might be able to, you know, address that particular issue. And um, you sort of, sometimes you have to dig way back into your toolbox, maybe back several years, right? <laughs> um, but, and, you know, fi- find some ideas on, on what people might be able to do. So, Shireen, you've, you've now been out of the defence system for a couple of years now. What would you do differently if you were to come back into the defence community in perhaps a CASG role? What would I do differently? Yeah. Do you have any regrets about your time in the DMO? I think the only regret that I have um, with the DMO was the image that the DMO developed inside defence, that it did develop an image that it wasn't um, cooperative and wasn't willing to collaborate. Now... Unfortunately, that image is sort of stuck and it, you know, certainly I felt that, you know, with the, you know, three services and other people that I worked with, I, I didn't see that there was a problem with the working relationship that we had, but it was, it was seen to be a very big, um, had a bit of it, you know, run to its own agenda, perhaps a little bit too much. 
um, sort of it wasn't seen not to be part of the defence organisation to the extent that it really was. It was fundamentally integrated into the defence organisation, but um, there was a, a lot of uh, perceptions that we we weren't. But you know, on the ground, the average um, DMO person was very much we're DMO, but we're part of defence. So I think it would be trying to ensure that. Um, if it was CASG, that CASG wouldn't be seen as yet another stovepipe, mm. right? Cylinder of excellence is my uh, yeah. preferred term for stovepipe these days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mm. yeah. Um, and that, you you know, everybody's working across boundaries and, and the like. Uh, that's absolutely important. I guess finally, um, Shireen, your, your husband was a career Navy officer, You've managed to also have a child in the mix as well. How did you, I guess just on the practical level, how do you balance all of that and stay sane? Stay sane? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, pass for sane. There's an assumption there, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, like Drew and I worked closely together to uh, like share parenting type duties. So uh, it wasn't just me that had to take the, you know, lion's share of that. Uh, he did a lot to support Shane and that was when he was home. When he was at sea, it, it was me, but I had my um, twin sister was living in Canberra at the time and uh, she helped me out a lot. So I had that like, you know, support system of my sister and my husband and we all worked pretty much together. So I helped her out with her kids. She helped out me out with my kid. And uh, I guess through the whole thing, not just with the kids, but just with problems, like Drew was a really good person to talk to or download on probably would be the way he'd refer to it, you know, with frustrations that I might have had at work. Um, and he's very patient and would listen to me and uh occasionally sort of steer me in a different direction than I might have been going on or just sort of help me see things a little bit more clearly when I might have got like too inclined to only one way of thinking of things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's very important to be able to have the occasional say la vent moment and unload a little. Um, Ah. And it's very difficult though in defence because of, you know, restricted layers of information and uh, need to know and so on. But you can unload a little in general, um, even and without revealing anything you're not allowed to. And, and that moment can still help. It's possible even in de- defence. Oh, uh, absolutely. The majority of issues that you want to download on are actually people issues, right? Yeah. Um, where you find people, you find people just don't want to work with other people and you know, just sort of uh, those sorts of frustrations. So, and you can download on those. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess you could say that um, you know, there's, there's, you've seen a fair bit of change go through with defence, uh, not just DMO becoming CASG, but uh, over the times and new platforms and everything. But one thing that does seem to stay the same is, of course, the people side of it. You, you're always going to have those issues. Yeah, I, um, I must admit, people are the best thing and the worst thing about the job. In many ways, um, I find a lot of workers, they don't leave organisations because of the work. They usually leave because of the people. Yep. And I, I guess what, what I found in defence, like there's a constant reviews, constant change, and a lot of the change goes to structures. Um, a little bit goes to improving processes, but not a lot. 
And when the department tries to do the cultural change bit, which is the bit that takes the longest amount of time, I just found quite often when you are just starting to make your mark culturally, there'd be another change come through. And so a lot of the cultural change stuff would almost be put into the background while you did yet another structural review or what have you. So I guess even though there's, you know, huge effort went into trying to improve the culture of the organisation, a lot of those attempts ended up being thwarted by just so many new stuff, so many new changes coming in that were then took the limelight uh, from the cultural change piece. So I think you probably still have four cultures in defence, the three services and the APS. Yeah. Do you think those tribal lines will ever disappear? Um, probably not. And I don't know that you want them to disappear totally either because, you know, if you sort of look at culture, there's uh, often very good reasons why cultures build up the way they do and it's from necessity of the nature of the job that they have to do. So while each each one has quite different jobs, even though, you know, they do try to work together, um, their roles are quite different and the expertise and experience that they bring is different. So I think you want some cultural differences. I don't think that's a problem. Um, I, I think that the problem comes when you um, have a common goal for what you want the culture to be and how you can keep motivating people to drive to that um, culture or that mix of cultures. Mm finding the common ground that you can then build on to to deliver. Yeah. yeah. So, Shireen, when you were announced as the ADM Women in Defence Awards inaugural Hall of Fame inductee, how did you feel? I was gobsmacked. Like, I really was. Um, I think I was, like, um, a bit speechless for a while. And I was going, oh, you know, why me? There's so many very capable uh, women out there. Um this is such an honour. Like it was, it was a real surprise. Good, cool. Yeah. No, it's uh, by the, from what we've just discussed, you've definitely earned the in, induction because uh, your the volunteering, the career to date, the um, the ongoing business, but also especially the volunteering and the mentoring. That that's the hallmark of of amazement. Um, it's how you managed to pack all that in, as Kath was uh, indicating. It's uh, yeah, it's it's hard to have a busy life, but you've managed it and um, well done. It was fun. I, I really enjoyed it, so it wasn't <laughs> hard to do. <laughs> well, Shireen, I'm sure there's uh, plenty more to come in your career and uh, I get the feeling that uh, you're not going to just sit back and relax. There's lots to do and lots to keep you occupied and uh, new challenges ahead. So I'm looking forward to uh, maybe catching up with you in a few more years to find out uh, what the new tasks are that you're working on or any new volunteering or uh, how that the existing work's progressed. But thank you very much for coming on the show. Shereen McKinney, it's been a great chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you both. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yeffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence, or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au, or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. Thank you.